what made Avatar such a hit at the time was that gloss of new technology and that gloss of seeing something in a theater or experiencing something in a way that you'd never quite experienced it before. But you can't do that at home. I mean, that's the exact promise of Avatar is I'm gonna show you something in the theater that you've never seen before. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition since 1920. Here once again with our co-host, Sean Robbins, chief analyst at Box Office Pro, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. And in our feature segment, I'll be speaking with Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, going over the filmography of James Cameron ahead of the release of Avatar the way of water. But uh, guys, let's talk box office here because it was an extremely disappointing weekend at the box office right before the release of Avatar The Way of Water. Sean, this was the second worst weekend of the year from December 9th to 11th, a total of 37.5 million in the entire North American market. The only frame that was worse came back in, what was it, like pre-Morbius times here in the market, January 28th <laughs> to the 30th made $34.8 million. I can't believe we're in this situation. We're in like an Omicron level of attendance in the market right before a major new title comes out. Are you at all concerned about this landscape ahead of one of the biggest releases of the year? I don't know if concerned is quite the word I would go with, but look, I mean, I think back to pre-pandemic times and there was always this calm before the storm when there was a major December opener. I think of when Ron Howard's In the Heart of the Sea opened one week before Star Wars The Force Awakens and nothing was happening in the market. This is demonstrably worse because the holdovers from Thanksgiving are not nearly that same level. So that puts even more pressure on Avatar and these other Christmas releases to do well. But, you know, a lot of it, I think, comes down to the content itself. We can't really blame the pandemic anymore. We've all discussed that a lot here in recent weeks, that this is shifting further and further away from that discussion to a discussion of what audiences want to go see and whether the content is appealing to them. I think things are going to get better pretty soon, but this is... Uh, yeah, undoubtedly been a very rough patch. Yeah. Speaking of uh, holdovers not really uh, finding their connection with audiences, the news hit this week that Strange World will be going to Disney Plus after, I believe, Daniel, 20-something day exclusivity. I need to look up what... Is it that few? I mean, the movie came out in theaters uh, over Thanksgiving and is probably going to end up making less than half the amount of money that the bad guys made. Remember that animated title? I believe that's from Universal DreamWorks coming out earlier this year, again, during Omicron era. Yeah, another disappointing patch from Disney. But we're not expecting that to be the standard here. Sean, on December 21st, only days, really less than a week after Avatar The Way of Water opens, we do have another big animated title for families on the schedule. Let's open with that in terms of new releases coming to theaters. December 21st, the opening of Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Did I get the title right? There's a cat in this. It's That's a Spanish right. cat. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, it's been 12, no, 11 years since the first spinoff. So, you know, definitely a long wait for anybody who's been waiting for the continuation of the Shrek universe. I think there actually might be something to that, though, because this looks like it could actually do fairly well. It had early screenings around Thanksgiving time that sold very strongly. And honestly, Shrek itself has become a meme among Generation Z, I guess, is the current, whatever, the younger version of Generation Z. And 
you know, maybe there's kind of something to talk about there because back in the summer we saw minions go viral with the gentle minions uh, appealing to young teens. So I think maybe on a smaller scale, something like that could be possible with Puss in Boots. But the market theaters desperately need an, an animated movie that can make $100 million domestically. And I think I think this one has a shot. I hesitate to say it's locked, but I like the Christmas corridor and the fact that there's really not much else out there for parents with little kids who don't want to go sit down for three hours to see Avatar. But that said, that's kind of that's kind of been true over the last few months. We've had yeah, uh, we've had one family movie at a time, more or less, like Lila Crocodile and then Strange World, and it's always like, oh, well, this has been the only one in a while, so surely yeah. parents will be looking for new things to take their kids to, and then just. Obviously, I mean, when was the last time we had an animated children's movie that even met expectations? I would honestly say that was Minions, which exceeded expectations. <laughs> At what point do you start to get concerned that maybe the younger generation, by which I mean kids, people who have to be taken to the theaters by their parents, that they aren't getting into the habit of going to the movies, really? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I don't know if there's like a concrete answer, but to me... It's going to be 2020. I think next year is when we can really have a strong enough schedule and then eventually enough data to look back and say, okay, this is where the new normal is trending. And I see a trailer like Mario Brothers come out and that just screams four quadrant appeal to me, like Lego movie type success, if not bigger. That will be a major test. And then once that's out, there's a Pixar movie, a major Disney movie that year, a few other animated titles. There's more consistency, so maybe that's part of the secret sauce here. Is It's not just having an animated or a family movie once every couple of months, but a steady stream of them, even if they're not always going to be successful. It just builds back up that habit of going to the movies, and maybe 2023 offers a better chance of that. So give us a range here, Sean, on what can we expect from that opening weekend of Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. So the movie's opening on Wednesday, and with Christmas in the mix, that always throws off forecasts, even when you can kind of feel confident about them. It's a challenge. Christmas Eve follows on a Saturday this year. Historically, not a great movie going day, but the opposite of that is Christmas can see a big rebound on Sunday. I think anywhere from the mid-teens and upward for the three-day weekend is reasonable for Puss in Boots. It's going to have a strong multiplier, long legs into the new year not just because of that holiday corridor, but doesn't really have any competition, something we've talked about for a lot of kinds of movies lately. So I, I would look at something like that. If it can come anywhere near 20 million with that deflated Christmas Eve weekend, things would be looking great. But I think theaters will be more than happy taking something around 15 million, knowing the multiple that can come out of that. Another solid, I mean, when it comes to the Christmas corridor, you can always kind of find some solid counter-programming options among award season there. We've seen things like the Fablebins not really pick up traction, but The Whale is expanding. To, do we know how many theaters it's expanding to, Sean? I know uh, when it premiered this past weekend, it was at six and did quite well. I don't think we have an exact count yet. A24 has been rolling this out in staggered fashion, and I'm pretty sure they're also looking at how the market has been for award films up to this point. I would imagine being an expansion around Christmas, it should be in at least as many theaters as Fableman's went to when it expanded over Thanksgiving, which was somewhere around five to 600. It's possible that they go more given that it is a holiday, but it's something I think we'll have to look at a little bit closer next week. We know that Brendan Fraser's performance is really pushing most of the marketing for this film because it's really an actor's movie. A filmmaker like Darren Aronofsky can be divisive. Even the movies that have worked like Black Swan aren't really movies that let's say are universally appealing. 
So with someone like Brendan Fraser, you have a star that is the definition of universally appealing. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of goodwill, too, for his comeback. It might take time for audiences to discover and hear about it, but... You know, hopefully, knock on wood, this is the movie that maybe can break through a little bit. And what a great story that would be centering around Frasier. Everyone loves a comeback, especially in this industry. And talking about comebacks, 13 years after the release of Avatar, the original in this franchise, comes the long-awaited sequel. James Cameron hasn't made a feature film since. I think there's a lot of anticipation for this movie but important to say, the original Avatar, even though it ended up making, I think, over $750 million at the domestic box office in its time, the highest grossing film of all time, both globally and domestically, at least in the domestic market, never had a weekend above $77 million. That is a wonderful model of a movie that is not front-loaded, a movie that opened big, but not unbelievably big and kept on grossing week after week. Sean, let's get to it. What are your expectations for the sequel? There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, I think we almost have to look at this as two different movies. James Cameron historically has not had super front loaded opening weekends, but we're also talking of, as you mentioned, we're talking about someone who makes a movie less than every decade at this point. And there's not really a comparison for his types of releases. I'm looking at, he has fans. I think Avatar has fans, but he also has a very casual audience. He appeals to a lot of people. He doesn't always draw out that must-see opening weekend crowd because his movies drive word of mouth. And I think that's important to consider when looking at opening weekend because we're so used to comic book movies and whatnot driving $200 million openings. Is that possible with Way of Water? Sure, it's possible, especially with the higher ticket prices involved for 3D and other formats that will that will drive this. But I also think the other side to this is considering 3D on the negative. And that's it only in terms of how audiences came to perceive the format after Avatar. Maybe this is the asterisk, the exception to the rule. People know it's James Cameron making it. They want to come see this in 3D. And maybe those late ticket sales will pop up. At this point, I think the range just has to be wide to be objective. It could be anywhere from 150 million, maybe close to 190-ish million. But I think that's a very bullish end. I, I personally would rather lean conservative and be pleasantly surprised if it's a little higher. But there's so much volatility, I think, looking at this because the average ticket price on these sales is going to be the highest of any movie this year. I do wonder about that in, in terms of both you know, how, what percentage of opening weekend will come from premium formats? And, you know, asking this question of the people in the industry, you hear like 75, 85, 90%. I mean, just a crazy amount is expected to come to premium. But given that, are there going to be theaters that are screening this in just good old normal 2D? And thus, is there going to be like a quote unquote affordable way for people to see this when they can't yeah. <laughs> pay like 20 bucks a pop for a ticket? I think everybody wants to know the answer to that. And we're starting to see because as Showtime's began populating initially when sales started, it was heavily uh, weighted toward premium and 3D and high frame rates. 2D options weren't necessarily, they were there, but very few in comparison. I think they're starting to add more as as we the see the sales kind of up. like yeah to, mm -hmm. as we see the sales kind of start to stall a little bit outside of premium formats and i think there's a realization that people are just going to wait and see this movie in imax on the monday after christmas if they have to wait and see it then or uh, wait wait so for the I buzz that the 3d is good and not uh, post converted <laughs> right 
trash. Yeah. And that'll be the interesting part of all of this because it comes back to that question of do people want to see this movie or do they want to see this movie specifically in 3D? And how will HFR be treated? Because it didn't go over well with The Hobbit 10 years ago. Rebecca, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. And now let's move on to our feature segment, where I am joined by Russ Fisher, editorial director at the Box Office Studios, to go over the entire career filmography of James Cameron, going over his impact in the culture and society with all of the box office hits in his repertory. That's coming up next after the break. The Box Office Company has developed the tools and services to empower you to take charge of your digital marketing, and we are committed to continuously evolve with the latest trends and provide a seamless moviegoer experience. We are excited to share our latest addition to the Boost ecosystem. Our food and beverage ordering platform streamlines the purchasing process, so concessions are always one tap away. Whether they'd prefer to pick up concessions at the kiosk or have them delivered directly to their seats, Guests can tailor their experience and even leave gratuities for service that keeps them coming back. Contact us to get started at sales at boxoffice.com. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, division of our company that offers editorial services for movie theaters and Russ We've been talking about taping this segment for almost a year, maybe longer. (laughs) Yes. We are going over the entire filmography of James Cameron leading up to the release of Avatar, The Way of Water. So let's start with a movie that I think it's fair to say Cameron himself probably is trying to disown. How much ownership (laughs) is there of James Cameron on Piranha 2, The Spawning, a movie I've never seen, but you saw this recently. I did. I had never seen it, and I watched it last week. Piranha 2 also called Flying Killers in some territories. Cameron has made contradictory statements about this. He has said that he was fired two weeks into filming. He has said that the producer hired somebody else to shoot a bunch of stuff. He's also said he had no oversight on the editing, which if you were fired into the two weeks into production, of course you didn't. So if you didn't have oversight on the editing, then kind of suggests that you were there the whole time. I don't know. What I'll say about Piranha 2 is, A, it's a terrible movie. It's best moments. The thing is, Piranha 2, I do kind of believe that Cameron was either minimized or fired at some point because it doesn't feel like a Cameron movie, even in rough form. It doesn't even feel like the work of a single filmmaker. Like, it's a patchwork movie. There's stuff in there that is clearly James Cameron. There's stuff in there that feels like a decent schlocky late 70s early 80s italian thriller but here's the point about piranha 2 the spawning a it is his first movie he has kind of taken ownership of it he's made jokes about it and more important the fascination with water and what lives under the water and how we interact individually and as a species with and as a society with the oceans is part of that movie. And you don't have to explain to anybody that that is the dominant theme of James Cameron's career. It comes to fruition first in the abyss, certainly. And then obviously it is the primary focus of Avatar, the way of water. And, you know, he's done plenty of nonfiction work with diving. Obviously Titanic is fueled by this, you know, it's like water is the Jim Cameron thing. And 
that is clearly in Piranha. So as much as I would like to say you don't have to see Piranha because it's terrible, Piranha 2, The Spawning, I'm sorry, Joe Dante did the original Piranha. It's kind of worth seeing in a way if you really want to have the full picture because some of that stuff that is very deeply soaked into Cameron's career as a whole is in that movie. The movie that comes after this is so important, I think, when we talk about the big picture of James Cameron, because it's still, I think, a cultural reference point today. The Terminator, a movie that opens on October 26th, 1984. And we were talking about this right before we started recording, Russ. There is so much John Carpenter in this movie. It's coming around Halloween season. There is just so much of Halloween. There's a lot of touches of even uh, Escape from New York that we know that Cameron was involved in that production with Carpenter. We both defined this as a slasher movie, right? It's not even... Absolutely. I think it's a slasher movie before it's a sci-fi movie, to be fair. Yeah, and it's interesting that James Cameron's certainly the early phase of his career is tied to like Alien because Alien's a horror movie that happens to be in space. The Terminator is a horror movie that has a robot from the future in it, but it is fundamentally a horror movie and really, as you say, a slasher movie. It's inspired by Halloween. Again, yeah, he worked with Carpenter on Escape from New York. In general, Cameron, as did a bunch of filmmakers of his era, kind of got started in the Roger Corman school, you know? Right. He worked on a bunch of these Corman schlocky sci-fi movies. He worked uh, on Battle Beyond the Stars. You know, he was production assistant at Rock and Roll High School, the Ramones movie. You know, it's like he worked for Corman. He learned a lot from Corman. And then I think Piranha 2 really told him like, okay, I do kind of want to make these movies in a way, but I don't want to make it in this fashion. And I think that, you know, Cameron is noted as a controlling personality. And I think if your first experience directing a movie was Piranha 2 The Spawning with whatever happened there, I think it's a pretty natural (laughs) next phase to grow into like, no, I call the shots on everything because I don't want that to happen again. And he calls the shots on everything on The Terminator and The Terminator really is a culmination of all that stuff. Like it's schlocky sci-fi, it's a Carpenter-influenced slasher movie, But it's also, you know, very much Jim Cameron in terms of understanding how to tell a story, understanding how to pare a story down to its most essential elements and its most essential characters. There's nothing in that movie that doesn't need to be in there. And that is in part probably because he didn't have a lot of money and he wanted to spend all of that money on effects because he did very ambitious effects for that film. You look at them now and it's like, okay, some of this stuff is a little creaky, but I Let's mean, call the it designs are by. Yeah, yeah it is ambitious. There's Look, an ambition there to work beyond the budget. I think there's no question. Absolutely, and Creaky is unfair. But you know, some of that I think comes from you know. I grew up in the '80s. I saw Terminator. I didn't see the Terminator in theaters. I saw it on VHS or cable. VHS, of course, gave a lot of these movies like a nice. There's a nice layer between you and the movie in a way. <laughs> and when I watch Terminator now, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, you know, I see how you did all this stuff. There's no mystery in that movie to me, but it's still a magic movie. And there's a lot of stuff in that movie that works that under somebody else would not work. It's cast beautifully. It's, you know, Linda Hamilton is exceptional. Michael Bean is very good. We'll circle back around to Bean because he's in, he does three movies with Cameron. But the Terminator really is a special movie. 
And you mentioned a second ago, Alien, the Ridley Scott movie, Russ, that was released in 1979. That's another horror movie that feels like, it doesn't feel as much as a slasher as the Terminator does. It feels a lot more like a universal horror movie. Yeah, it's kind of a haunted house movie. Yeah. Exactly. There's a lot of that like gothic horror from Universal that they got so right in the 1920s and 30s, right? A Absolutely. lot of those elements are in that original Alien, and that also is infused in the Terminator. So you've got the sci-fi no stuff, you've got the gothic horror, you've got the dystopia, you've got this is again released in the middle of the slasher era where movies where women fight an unstoppable male killer are doing really, really well at the box office, even if they're repetitive. And you know what? Honestly, maybe not all of them are doing really, really well at the box office, but you can make them cheap and you can make some profit out of it. The VHS era is booming in Absolutely. at this yeah. point. And VHS fuels that slasher boom as well, because like you say, they're cheap movies to make. And at a certain point, they don't even need a wide theatrical release. You give it a crazy piece of box art and you put it on shelves and you know you've got a hundred dollar sell through price for retailers. <laughs> it's on autopilot at that point. Yeah, you make money. Yeah, but this is, I think, where we come to Cameron because you're familiar with gothic horror. You're familiar at this point with the slasher movie. He takes these things that you're familiar with and makes a cinematic spectacle out of them. And he does that by continuously challenging your expectations of these genre movies. I know we use some of this language when we talk about Spielberg. We did that podcast a couple of weeks back. It's the same sort of magic here. You know what a horror movie looks like, but you know when you see a Cameron movie, it's not just going to be a horror movie. It's going to be infused with all these different models. And that's why I come back to Alien, because the next movie that comes out after the success of The Terminator, a movie that launches the career of Arnold Schwarzenegger, is a sequel to Alien. A very, very, very similar movie to The Terminator in many regards. And you're just expecting more of the same, right? It's just, it makes so much sense to pick Cameron to do Aliens. It wasn't Alien 2, it was Aliens. But he comes out with a completely different movie, completely <laughs> different tone. Two years later, Aliens in 1986. If Terminator shows potential, Aliens is the fulfillment of what this guy can do with a big budget. Yeah, I mean, Aliens is bonkers. There's nothing else quite like it. And I think that the other thing that's bedrock for this and that separates Cameron from, say, Ridley Scott, you know, Ridley Scott, he makes Alien and then he does his own rampaging robot movie just before Cameron does Terminator. He does Blade Runner. Blade Runner, not a big success, but certainly casts a long shadow and is massively influential. But, you know, Ridley Scott came out of commercials and Ridley Scott has like a gauzy kind of artistry to him that Cameron does not. Cameron is a very meat and potatoes filmmaker in a lot of ways. You know, he's message-minded, which you get more and more as his movies go on. He is, as his fascination with oceans deepens, if you will, he becomes more and more environmentally conscious. But when you really get down to it, Cameron's filmmaking is very straightforward. He's not an arty filmmaker. He's very mainstream. He's very populist. His dialogue is, at times, kind of laughably 
approachable, you know, some of this stuff occasionally, you know, his dialogue gets clunky in places because he doesn't want it to be like way up here over your head. He's throwing lines right at you and he doesn't want anybody to miss anything. You know, he is not interested in ambiguity. He's not interested in creating a message that you may or may not get. He wants you to get it and he wants you to come back and see it again because you love it. But because the experience was unlike anything else you'd had. He's a set piece filmmaker, right? He just, he, he is. really nails down big set pieces that are emphasis points throughout a running time. When you watch a Cameron movie, you know there's going to be two or three action sequences in that running time that are going to keep you in your seat. And you're going to pay another ticket, maybe the next weekend, to see those two or three scenes again. And that's, why I think, what Aliens gets so perfectly right. I was one year old when this movie comes out. Obviously, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw this in DVD, actually, when I was a teenager, after having seen the original Alien and expecting Mm. something similar, and I hated it. Not because there was anything wrong with Aliens. I just Mm. wanted Alien 2 instead of Mm. Aliens. Now that I've seen it a couple more times, I've come to terms with what the movie wants to be. And I really like it for those reasons. But it's, like you say, just a wonderful big screen studio experience for 20th Century Fox. And it starts a relationship that continues with 20th Century Fox beyond the studio even existing. As we know, Avatar The Way of Water started at Fox and has continued now under the direction of Disney. Where did you first watch Aliens, Ross? Because if you were the right age for this movie, (laughs) I can only imagine how crazy it was to see in theaters. Oh, boy, was I ever the right age for this movie. (laughs) I had wanted to see Alien more desperately than anything else. I was seven when that movie came out. My parents smartly said no. And I was fascinated with Alien for a long time. And, you know, finally saw it on VHS. Loved it. And then in summer of 1986, we moved from Napa, California to Midland, Texas. It was a very difficult (laughs) <laughs> it was a very difficult transition. I was very unhappy and it was, you know, it wasn't a good time, but we get to Midland and I'm watching TV and I see a commercial for aliens and I lose my goddamn mind because it op- <laughs> it's opening in like two weeks. You know, I had no idea the movie exit that was coming out. I didn't know anything about it. You know, I'd been very focused on this move and it becomes my reason for life for a couple of weeks. It was, at the time, absolutely the greatest thing I'd ever seen. No question. It completely ends up being a different movie than what you think it's going to be when you walk in. Because as I was saying, my expectation of Aliens coming into it was, well, Alien is about the perfect killing machine. That's the Terminator. It might be the same tagline, right? The perfect killing machine is coming after you. It's unstoppable. And when you watch that first Terminator, it is impossible to get rid of that damn thing. When you watch the first Alien, <laughs> dude, it has acid as blood. How are you going to do It's going to you know, puncture a hole through the spaceship. Everyone's going to die. When you watch Aliens, it just has fun with the concept. Let's not do one of them. Let's do a whole colony of things and have them just completely massacre like space marines. And let's bring all these aspects of motherhood in it. I don't know. It it is wild. And it works, which is the craziest thing about it. I have a couple of points to make here. One is that one could go so far as to call it Alien the Spawning. 
<laughs> if you take Spielberg's Jaws, obviously an influence on Alien, they both have a very similar ethos in the sense that you have a monster, you hide the monster in part because you can't afford to show the monster all the time, but also because it works better if you hide the monster. And then a movie like Piranha 2, which does actually kind of hide the piranha because they just didn't have any money to make them, but you show a bunch of them and they're doing them more. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, you expand that. I think the general concept of Aliens is wonderful because alien is nearly a perfect movie you can't do that again why would you try if you're james cameron you're crazy to try you're not going to make a better version of that other people have tried and nobody has done it yet even ridley scott hasn't done it better and so you don't try to do that again i think he's very smart to say you know to be don draper with a whiteboard (laughs) with the word alien on there. And then you write an S at the end and it's like the room goes crazy. So it's just like, I think it's a brilliant concept. He has a brilliant collaborator in Stan Winston who had done such good work on Terminator. The Stan Winston designs and work on all of the effects in aliens. The importance of those cannot be overstated, but Cameron knows how to shoot them. And you know, the thing is you talk about it being like alien. Yes. Truckers in space, kind of a blue collar movie, Truckers opposed against a company, but that company is seems to have like huge, huge power. But ultimately, I would say that Aliens, clearly about a military industrial complex and its failings, Aliens is very much like what happens when the thing that thinks it's the perfect killing machine, i.e. our military, runs into something stronger. And that, you know, coming in at the tail end of the Cold War is really interesting. You know, Cameron is absolutely doing something with this movie in terms of having a political viewpoint and having themes that go beyond the motherhood thing, which is a big deal. There's a lot going on in that film. And yet you primarily remember it as this hyper entertaining, explosive, populist, super fun movie with catchy dialogue. It's terrific. There's a run after Star Wars kind of shoves sci-fi into the mainstream of really interesting sci-fi movies. You mentioned Alien in 79. Carpenter comes out with Escape from New York in 81. Then you've got Ridley Scott with Blade Runner in 82. We mentioned The Terminator in 84. Back to the The Thing is in there. The Thing is in there, another Carpenter movie. You've got Back to the Future from Zemeckis in 85. 1986, you've got Aliens, you've got E.T., Robocop in 1987. How am I forgetting The Fly? We're talking about Canadian directors. (laughs) In my opinion, Cronenberg's best movie, The Fly, is just one after another. Every year you had a fantastically interesting sci-fi movie playing in multiplexes all over the United States that anybody can plug in and watch and be entertained by. And James Cameron ends up making a reputation in his career through these type of movies. Aliens is the ultimate popcorn movie within this space. If we talk about the Terminator is existing within the slasher era, I think Aliens exists within this general era of great sci-fi movies coming from Hollywood. And what's interesting is that three years after Aliens, he follows it up with his next movie, The Abyss, an underwater adventure in which a sub is destroyed and Navy SEALs are sent in to recover warheads. And The Abyss is wild because it adapts the structure of Aliens. The first act of The Abyss 
is just the first act of Aliens transposed. It's almost exactly the same beats. It even has more of the truckers in space thing from Alien. But it takes Cameron's underwater fascination and absolutely blows it up onto a giant canvas. And it also takes that kind of popcorn filmmaking and applies it to something that Cameron clearly has a very deep personal connection to. It's about marriage. You know, the Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio characters are married. They're on the verge of divorce. And the bond between them or lack thereof becomes a key point, not just in the plot, but in the thematic and emotional arc of the movie. It's a really interesting film. It's his maturation point up to that stage. And it's something unlike, not just unlike what he's done before, but nobody else is making a movie like The Abyss. And it kind of prefigures most of what he has done since. And that may be the quietest movie of his filmography. Well, True Lies probably is another title that is there, but it maybe doesn't have the rewatchability as others. That's a movie, for example, that I haven't seen. What was the reception of The Abyss in 1989 when it comes out? Because it's the follow-up from the guy that just made Aliens. Where did you watch it? What was the culture like? This is the same year that Batman comes out, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, same summer, I believe. Yeah. You know, I saw it and I liked it. I didn't love it. And I like it a lot more now. I just rewatched it. And I rewatched the special edition, which is about 20 minutes longer than the theatrical. And which I think is, it has some problems, but overall it's better. And, you know, like you say, The Abyss is a quieter movie. It's a more emotional movie. Um, It is not as explosive and the explosive stuff in it actually doesn't work as well as it should. You know, it's kind of divided into a couple of sections. It's a little awkward in this sense. So you've basically got this research rig. They're being pushed into this mission. That's a military mission. They don't want to do it. Continuing some of the themes from aliens, but then Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's character encounters what seems to be almost an actual alien creature underwater. And that opens the story up into really unusual dimensions. You know, there's nothing, again, there's no subtlety in the abyss at all. There's not a moment of subtlety, but you don't need it and you don't want it. Like it works because it's big. It works because he does splash everything up on the screen. And when it comes down to that bit, that's really the emotional crux in the movie that you can tell is the thing that Cameron really cares about. It's great. And it's actually kind of beautiful and in some ways it's some of the most powerful filmmaking he's done but it's not a sort of definitive movie when we look at the whole i think it's as you say maybe it's an important movie in the filmography for us to understand james cameron to understand his themes in the culture at large that moment doesn't come back until the release in 1991 of well, the first sequel to one of his movies, of course, he made Aliens, a sequel itself. He made Piranha 2, as we spoke about, and he even wrote a sequel. He actually co-wrote with Sylvester Stallone the sequel to First Blood, Rambo 2, which is a horrible movie, but we won't get into that. Also a Reagan-era military-industrial complex movie, by the way. I'm glad you bring that up. There's a lot of Rambo 2 in Aliens. Like a lot yes. of Rambo 2 in Aliens. You can Absolutely. see many of those themes that maybe Stallone said, no, I don't want to make that movie. They end 100%. up getting kept and shelved and shoved into Aliens. And that makes Aliens a much more interesting movie. I would have loved to have seen what James Cameron did with Rambo 2. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, Rambo 2 in itself, the best parts are the parts that show up in Aliens the following year. But let's not get too lost in that part of the conversation. You speak about FX work, and of course, that's a big part 
of Cameron's legacy, of what we associate him as a filmmaker, at least audiences all over the world. When you watch a James Cameron movie, you're going to see fantastic, cutting-edge special effects. I would say that reputation starts in 1991 with the release of Terminator 2 Judgment Day. We were setting it up a second ago. This is him doing his first sequel of one of his own movies. He's done sequels for other people before. He did a Ridley Scott sequel. He ended up doing a Joe Dante sequel, a Sylvester Stallone sequel. This is his. And kind of like Aliens, he doesn't go back to do a monster movie. He doesn't go back to just giving you more of the same. He makes a completely different movie that on paper, Russ, sounds very dumb. (laughs) You're going to make a Terminator movie with like an 11 year old kid that misbehaves, you know, like yeah. going to arcades and like drinking Pepsi because that's rebellious, obviously. To be fair, I'm not, I don't remember it being Pepsi, but he had that kind of like early 90s <laughs> Pepsi generation rebelliousness. It just, it seems dumb. And how could this even be? Is it R rated? Am I completely oh, off yeah. on that? It's very yeah. R rated. It's a children's movie that's rated R. Sequel to a very adult movie. I have no idea how this works, but again, it works perfectly. And the special effects, that's what makes this a reference disc. The special effects hold up today. Oh, this, is the, this is the number one movie of 1991. This movie makes over $200 million at the box office. Comes out on July 4th weekend. I was too young to see this movie when it came out theatrically. I did see it, what, when I was nine, 10 years old on home video. This is the first James Cameron movie I see in my life. And I'm blown away because the reasons that I kind of joke that this is a silly idea now, when you're 11 years old and you put yourself in the shoes of like, oh yeah, I'm 11. I can fight a robot monster with my (laughs) robot monster friend. And there's going to be liquid goo and explosions. You it just tailor made for 11 year olds, but it's still yes. rated R and it works for anyone at any age. Yeah, I have no idea why my parents let me rent I mean, that, but I loved it. I loved every second. It was exceptionally well directed. You know, it's weird. Like I was saying about the abyss, where the kind of big action sequence in the middle of the abyss, I think, doesn't fit. That's strange because generally speaking, Cameron is an exceptional filmmaker, especially when it comes to action. You know, he really understands how to photograph a scene to make it work, how to cut it and to direct it, obviously. And Terminator 2 is is a great example of this. I mean, the semi-motorcycle chase is magnificent. All of the stuff with Robert Patrick is great. It's very, very well done. And it's so good that it kind of kills the franchise. That's the weird thing about it. People still try to make Terminator movies year after year. Cameron has been involved even as a producer to some extent in, I think, the latest one. It's so good that it ruins every other Terminator movie that follows it because you can't hit that standard. It's something that we joked about this. I think you brought this up with the Jurassic Park podcast we did where... Jurassic Park's a franchise where we all love the first one, but we kind of, you know, we keep on going (laughs) just because we like the first one. Terminator 2 is so good that it ruins every other Terminator movie you will ever watch. Just stop. You're good. Just pack your things (laughs) and go home. Don't even try. There's no point to. The Christian Bale one is unusually bad, but they're all, you know, some are better than others. 
I like Genesis, like the first act of Terminator Genesis, I liked. I think it goes off the rails after that. But yeah, I mean, let's not spend too much time talking about the bad Terminator movies. We just <laughs> talked about the two good ones. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because after that massive runaway success of Terminator 2, a movie that should not work by any means, but works perfectly, he follows that up in 1994 with True Lies. Which is, interestingly enough, a movie that at the time, I don't think too many people saw it as problematic. Today, you saw it very recently. It just, it doesn't hold up at all. True Lies starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, obviously coming off of the runaway success of T2. He's in a starring role that doesn't really work all the way. Jamie Lee Curtis, who we talked about the influence of Halloween in Carpenter's career and his early movies. She's in it. I saw this movie on a Mexican bus ride. I think that's the only (laughs) way I've ever seen it. That's probably the best way to see it. It seemed like a forgettable, like Schwarzenegger mid 90s action movie where like Schwarzenegger could do no wrong with this type of movie in the late 80s. By the time we get into the mid 90s, there's titles like Eraser out there that I think comes out like yeah. two years after this one that are just like, all right, this is kind of like... End of days. Uh, yeah, it's like yeah. it's it's the post-Cobra Stallone Schwarzenegger thing that's just kind of milling about. It stands out because, you know, there's two or three good set pieces here because Cameron directs the thing, but it seems a movie that maybe should have been made in the 80s. Is that unfair? Yeah, I mean, True Lies is weird. It's, you know, it's a remake of a French movie that was, I believe, more of a comedy than this. And this certainly has comedic elements, some of which work, some of which now really do not. It feels pretty retrograde when you watch it now. That said, some of the action is very good. There are, as you say, a couple of really good set pieces, but it's weird. It almost feels like a bizarro Bond movie in a way. There are just a bunch of things about it that, yeah, it's a weird movie. Obviously, I didn't see it at the time. I've obviously seen it since. I've watched it a couple of times because every once in a while, it's sort of like, wait, am I misremembering True Lies? And then I watch it again. It's like, no, no, I'm not. (laughs) I know exactly what this movie is. And it's the weird thing is that right around the same time, he's also working as a producer on Catherine Bigelow's movie, Strange Days, which comes out a year later in 1995. Who he's romantically involved with, correct? They're divorced by this point. By this point, No, I think they're already split. When they they, they had worked things. together as a couple on Point Break. I know that he was maybe involved as a producer. He's an exec producer on Point Break, yeah, which I think his company, Lightstorm, partially finances and certainly puts muscle behind. So, I mean, it's probably not a stretch to say that Cameron helped Point Break happen, especially being Cameron at that point. But it's a Catherine Bigelow movie. I mean, it's not a Jim Cameron movie. And neither is Strange Days. Strange Days is a Bigelow movie, definitely. But it's weird because you watch Strange Days is very good. Also a movie that has not very much made the transition to HD. I think you can get Strange Days on blue now. And it does hit cable occasionally, but Strange Days is not a movie that has the profile that it should especially compared to like the matrix, you know, strange days should really be up there and it's not, but it's weird. It's like strange days is much more along the lines of the movie that you kind of wish Cameron had made in the mid nineties instead of true lies, but he didn't Catherine Bigelow made it. She did a great job. It is her movie a hundred percent. And you know, we got true lies. The other big movie that Cameron doesn't make in the mid nineties is Spider-Man. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that's the big, big project that he develops, gets really far along in trying to make work. Remember, he completely redefines the limits of special effects with T2. Yeah. You think he can probably get there with Spider-Man. That movie never makes the light of day. There's a lot written out in the internet. You can go find it, YouTube videos. People that have put a lot more time than either of us have can tell you more about the unproduced Cameron Spider-Man. Like, like you say, you know, it seemed like Cameron was the guy who could crack it, where I think anybody looked at Spider-Man, you know, had maybe seen the TV movies or whatever. And it's like, how do you do this and have it work? You know, this is pre-X-Men, obviously pre-Sam Raimi Spider-Man. It's, it's difficult to kind of put yourself back in the mindset of that mid to late nineties thing where it was like, how do you make these superhero movies happen? Blade comes out, blade is good, but blades a very, it's own sort of like meat potatoes movie. Like it doesn't have the digital special effects for the most part that need to happen for a movie like Spider-Man. But uh, yeah, he, you know, obviously Sam Raimi comes on, he does a great job with it and it's cool, but yeah, like you, I think I would like to see the alternate universe in which James Cameron's Spider-Man actually gets made. But I think the thing with Spider-Man is, you know, Marvel then did not have the power that Marvel has now by any means. You know, Marvel was a struggling company at the time. You know, it was a company that was facing multiple bankruptcies. And, you know, it's kind of a wonder that Marvel hung on in the end. But still, like, a lot of stakeholders in Spider-Man and a lot of people to deal with, a lot of, you know, studios seeing it as something that needs to happen and happen right. Well, because it's not original IP. You know, if he goes in and does something with the Terminator, he made that. If he does something with aliens that offends Ridley Scott, sure, it's an alien, man. You're good. Spider-Man, there's a lot of history there. You can't give up total control. Of course, he was going to have people poking around on that project. Yeah, and that's that's not his thing. Yeah, yeah, he's not. Cameron. That's not the movies he makes. He'll make something called Avatar with a bunch of blue people you can't name, as long as he doesn't have to answer any questions. Or he'll make something called Titanic, you know, <laughs> and which is what he does in 1997. Wow, yeah, he pivots to Titanic. You know, Titanic is wild because so for the abyss. One thing about the abyss is that there's a lot of underwater stuff in the abyss and to the degree possible, it's actually the actors doing it, which again, kind of pioneers a thing that carries into Titanic and then Avatar and certainly Avatar the way of water. You know, there's scenes, big swimming scenes underwater, like underwater swimming scenes in the abyss that are done by like Ed Harris, you know, and it's kind of unusual and it gives the movie a quality that it would not otherwise have because it's very clearly these actors doing it. And to do this, like he builds a tank and he has to do a bunch of stuff to make that movie happen. So when it comes to Titanic, he does the same thing, but bigger. He builds the biggest movie filming water tank in the world in Mexico, this like multi-million dollar installation in order to film Titanic. Titanic becomes the most expensive movie ever made by a significant margin. Oh, our Mexican newscasts would from time to time update you that this movie was still being made in Northern Mexico. And they had no idea when this thing was going to come out. It was a troubled production. A lot of people were asking serious questions about this thing going off the rails. Little did we know what was in store. I mean, Titanic really is the birth of the James Cameron doesn't miss 
concept or the never doubt James Cameron idea, because I don't think anybody really thought about it too much prior to that. Maybe, maybe some people kind of did aliens and T2 or something, but it's like, I don't know if anybody's going to make a Terminator sequel that works, it's Cameron. So sure. But Titanic, everybody doubts Titanic. Of course, 1997, the guy that made true lies is going to come in with a period piece with a romantic drama in there. It's not what you think would work. You know the ending, the boat sinks. <laughs> you know, it's got untested leads. You know, DiCaprio yeah. is not a name at this point. Kate Winslet, not a name. Even less. She's very Even good. Less. Yeah, you know, fantastic. But that was a very big unknown quantity. DiCaprio, you could see there was a potential there. Remember, 96, you had Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet. Right. Is, is that how I call it? Or is it Romeo and Juliet? Whatever. Yeah, it was just, that I movie. just call it Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You know, there was a star quality there that sort of built the yes. base for the DiCaprio phenomenon. But Kate Winslet was a completely unproven female lead. She makes the movie work like more than oh, anyone else terrific, in that yeah. movie. It's the Kate Winslet show. You know, if you've seen Heavenly Creatures, which I had at that point, that was kind of the reason that honestly Kate Winslet was my point of interest for that movie because Heavenly Creatures, I loved. I thought she was great in it. So it was like, well, okay, it's Cameron doing this crazy thing plus Kate Winslet. And I mean, he's taking digital effects to an extreme. It's like he's doing actual digital actors, you know, which was the thing that nobody had done before. He's like, oh, I'm digitally putting, you know, people's, you know, the condensing cold breath from people's mouths when they're on the board the ship and digital effects are so unproven and so rough most of the time at this point that people i think virtually everyone was like how is this movie gonna work what is it yeah no it, it, like beyond anyone's most optimistic expectations on a dramatic level the performances still stand i know it's the writing's not always the best we've always said this about cameron but the actors really make it you know work effectively it's a fantastic fantastic ensemble the visual effects all work seamlessly this movie ends up being the highest grossing movie of all time when it is released it is a global phenomenon it seems like everybody in the world has seen this movie three times myself included <laughs> i was in middle school when this movie came out it is the movie of my middle school years. And it's weird because it you look back in these times of your life and you mm. sort of remember the movies that dominated the playground, right? That everybody talked about at recess. I had in 1996 a movie like Independence Day. I remember Scream coming out when I was living in Brazil mm. and that being mm -hmm. like a really cool slasher MTV movie that everybody that was hip had to go see Scream. But Titanic, nothing, nothing, nothing compared to Titanic. Yeah. And the thing is, Titanic is unique in that respect. There are not many movie releases quite like Titanic. So if you were there at the time and if you were of the age that was perfect for that, then that's great. It's great that you got to experience it like that. And it was so different, I think, from the other big budget Hollywood movies that were marketed to cross-quadrant audiences. Because this is around the time when the disaster movie is getting really, really popular. I spoke about Independence <laughs> Day. But then that still seems, everyone's making that type of movie. And Titanic is very much not that. It's a disaster movie, absolutely. But it's not the end of the world disaster movie. You know the boat sinking. That's part of the appeal, right? 
the movies that come out the year after, things like Deep Impact, things like Armageddon, that was the big sort of disaster movie that people were watching. You had Dante's Peak, Volcano. Remember that one where a volcano erupts in the middle of LA? There seemed to be this spectacle. Those came out right at the same time. Dante's Peak and exactly. Volcano were, yeah. I think it was the same year, the same way that like Deep like Impact same, and Armageddon yeah, exactly. come out like in the same year. So you had these sort of movies being made by studios where like things break and a bunch of people die. Titanic is that, but it was so different in being that, that it just, I think, charmed the whole generation and stands above all those other movies that I mentioned. It's in a class by itself, but it had, you know, company. We mentioned that with The Terminator. It's part of a slasher era. Aliens is part of a sci-fi era in Hollywood. Titanic is part of this disaster movie in the mid-90s, but it's so good that we don't think about it in that way. And the other thing that we have to talk about when we discuss this cultural impact of Titanic, beyond just the box office, is it becomes a cultural touchstone at the Academy Awards that happened in 1998. It's like everybody is rooting for this thing to just clean up, right? Everybody's just like with their Titanic flags, or maybe you don't want it to win everything. And that's something that happens again in 2009 with Avatar. Yeah, I mean, it's like Titanic... It had what, like 14 nominations, which I think ties it with All About Eve from 1950. And it won 11, including picture and director for Cameron. Winning 11 war awards is the most wins a movie has had. Two other films, I think, have that distinction. Uh, Ben-Hur, 1959. And then later, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King in 2003. So those three movies have won 11 Oscars in their respective years. Titanic is the second movie to do so. And coming from a movie that, again, everybody thought was going to be a disaster, a literal disaster. And it's the opposite. It's this soaring, triumphant success. And it's capped off with Cameron, you know, famously accepting his, I think, God, I can't remember if it's him taking the best director or the best picture Oscar and him proclaiming him exuberantly saying I'm the king of the world, which is the sort <laughs> no. of thing that is like, it's don't, wild. Don't because, and the thing is, it's okay. Cause it's James Cameron who can yeah, seemingly yeah. do all of this stuff that nobody else could get away with. And it just seems like such a great moment for this filmmaker, right? All eyes are on him. All eyes are on DiCaprio. There's just so much expectation on what comes next from everyone involved in this movie. And as far as James Cameron is concerned, we don't really get to see anything for like a long time. This period is weird because we know that he was still working, trying to develop that Spider-Man movie, but he ends up bailing on it, right? He just ends up walking away from it at some point. Yeah, you know, he writes a pretty extensive treatment that's like maybe more script than I don't think it was really a final script but I think it was a very detailed treatment that had dialogue that had a lot of stuff key moments a lot of that in there and then ultimately David Kep writes a script I think commissioned by Columbia who ultimately makes the movie Kep writes a script that is really what kicks off the movie that becomes the development that becomes Sam Raimi's Spider-Man that Kep script does incorporate many elements of Cameron's work without Cameron being credited. And I know that that was a point of contention. That was an issue. I don't know if Cameron, you know, filed anything with the WGA. I'm not sure what happened there. The point being that the Spider-Man movie that did ultimately happen with Sam Raimi at the helm does have 
Cameron's efforts at its roots, not just the soil in which it was grown, but I mean, the actual roots of that project are still Jim Cameron's work, which is really interesting. And that's the movie that ends up defining that decade in Hollywood. I mean, of course, you have the launching point of X-Men from Brian Singer, but 2002 Spider-Man launches an era of making movies that pushes Hollywood one direction. Like you say, there's a lot of thumbprints, fingerprints of Cameron in there, but instead of Cameron going that direction, he does other things. He's involved in TV. He's making IMAX documentaries. He's doing everything but these big movies that Hollywood's making for most of the 2000s. Yeah, it's wild. He does like this kind of cyberpunk TV series, Dark Angel, which is Jessica Alba's real first famous role is that. And it's a moderately but not super successful series. You know, he does movies like Ghost of the Abyss and Aliens of the Deep, these underwater documentaries, doing some of them in collaboration with IMAX. He does more real world exploration of actual wreck of the Titanic. He spearheads a lot of movement there and probably pays for a bunch of it as well. And he also, I think in this time, you know, he's a lot of what he is doing too, is this sort of iteration and pushing forward of filming technology. You know, he's working on cameras, he's collaborating with IMAX and other companies to really push all of this filming technology and specifically underwater filming technology forward, which is notable. It's just not very, you know, it is below the surface of the movie machinery for most people. And so I think if you're just kind of casually interested in James Cameron movies, it seems like the guy kind of disappears for a while. It's really not the case, but he just isn't doing these you know, Aliens, T2, Titanic sort of movies for more than a decade. Yeah. And we really don't know what he's going to be coming out with other than we know that he's pushing the boundaries of technology. We know he's somewhere out there in a workshop getting something ready. And of course, what comes out next in 2009 is Avatar. But before we talk about Avatar and the technology that's able to get there, We do have to talk about this since it is a film exhibition podcast. We don't get Avatar the way it came out without the implementation of digital cinema projection, not only in the U.S., but around the world. This is the movie that builds digital 3D. This is a movie that fulfills the potential of why you have to go from analog to digital. It starts making... For the first time, because I think we'd all agree, a pristine 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter print is most of the time going to look better than a digital print of any movie. But the reality is, of course, it's really hard to find a pristine. Those those prints do not remain pristine for long. And there's not really an aesthetic example that we can come up with at this time to say, hey, digital cinema can bring something to the table visually as well. There's a benefit also for the quality of the image, not only in terms of cost optimization to go digital. Avatar is that movie. Avatar does more to push the industry to adopt digital than any other film that comes out. Yeah. I mean, it's akin to the push to adopt stereo that was driven by Star Wars and far more significant ultimately because it had a bigger effect on the industry overall. And that's kind of where you talked earlier about Cameron being intrinsically tied to perception of special effects. And and some of that is where this comes from. You know, he's 
beginning really with Terminator 2 and then certainly going forward into Titanic and Avatar, Cameron is intrinsically linked to forward motion in digital filmmaking technology, whether it is CGFX, digital projection, digital 3D, motion capture. All of these things are intrinsically tied to a given Cameron feature film. And so, you know, for better or worse, he's that guy now. And at this time, you know, he's doing Avatar, but he's also developing Battle Angel Alita based on a Japanese manga. And there, for a long time, you don't know which one's going to happen first. It was like for a long time. And ultimately, he doesn't get to direct the movie that turns out to be Alita Battle Angel that ends up being directed by uh, Robert Rodriguez in a production really spearheaded by Cameron and his team. But Avatar comes out in 2009 at a point where, yes, Marvel movies are a reality. Yes, people want to see these big superhero spectacles, but they turn out for an unproven IP that looks weird. It looked weird. I'm sorry to to put it so simply. I feel like the marketing for this movie was close to perfect because Mm. it had a big, big hurdle to get over to get folks jumping onto it. It's able to communicate that not only with the film itself, with the Cameron brand, it's also able to do that through the new technology available at a theater near you. And man, is that a killer combination Avatar is a very forgettable movie, if I may say that, but you can never forget the impact that the movie itself has, right? Yeah, you know, Avatar, I saw it. You had to see it. It was one of those things where, you know, 3D is resurging. You've got this push to do 3D, but Avatar is the movie that you have to see in 3D. That's just all there is to it. And it's such the movie that you have to see in 3D that its success drives the success of a couple of other movies. And in a way, like the backwater success of Avatar helps change other things. You know, months after Avatar opens, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland comes out. It's the next 3D movie after Avatar. It does crazy business. It makes over a billion dollars. Terrible movie makes over a billion (laughs) dollars. And I think helps kind of redirect what Disney's doing live action wise, because they're like, well, this movie made crazy money. And Alice in Wonderland kind of had the same spillover effect from Avatar where everybody was like, oh, 3D rules. Let's go see the next 3D movie. And it's Alice in Wonderland. Sorry. (laughs) Eventually, unfortunately, (laughs) Hollywood kept on trying to do that over and over again to the point where audiences stopped trusting digital 3D. We're at a moment right now where the industry needs Cameron to come in and reset the potential for digital 3D. I think a lot of audiences have been alienated by going to see a 3D movie. A little unfair because there's been, since Avatar, I think great examples of digital 3D. Cuaron's Gravity, I think being the high watermark. If you want to mm-hmm. bring in Life of Pi from Ang Lee, that's another yeah. great movie to talk about. But there haven't been too many movies like that. And I think that's part of the expectation of the sequel coming out soon. But when we're talking about this movie and its release and going to go see it, it also has what Titanic had in terms of repeat viewings. And this is something that our friend Clint Wasilowski over at Marcus Theatres brought up at a a recent webinar we had on premium format technology here at Box Office Pro. Did you know, Russ, that Avatar became the highest grossing domestic film of all time without once having a $100 million weekend? Huh. No, I did not know that. It did great business, nearly 750 million domestic, not once 
made more than the 77 million it did on opening weekend. It was just a movie that was able to hold consistently week after week after week. Nobody thought Avatar was going to work. And then people started to see it and was like, I don't know, it's pretty cool. It doesn't look... And, you know, my experience with Avatar was I saw a press screening. I saw it in Atlanta. I saw a good presentation of it. It looked gorgeous. I thought it was beautiful. I was not very involved in the movie. And it was very much one of those where I was like, this is a magnificent tech demo. I can see Cameron's involvement in it and his connection to it. I did not develop that connection myself. And I've actually never seen it again. It's not a movie I've ever revisited. I think that's the case for a lot of folks. Why do you think that is? Because T2, that's a rewatchable movie. Aliens, I think I've seen a million times. A lot of his most iconic movies, you go back to again and again and again. You have the exceptions. I think we talked about True Lies being kind of like the odd one out of the bunch. But Avatar is a hit that just seems to have receded in time. I don't know. It's just very interesting that this never really took on in the culture. What do you think that is, that it didn't take on in the culture? I think some of it is that Cameron's best movies, they make a connection. You know, he, at his best, he writes very good characters and he directs very good characters and he casts his movies well. And so that's what keeps you coming back to a lot of that stuff. I mean, T2, Aliens, Titanic, there's spectacle, but you come back for the stories that are in those movies. Avatar's story is a little cut and paste, it feels. We've seen it before. You hadn't seen Aliens before. You hadn't seen Terminator 2 before. Avatar, if you watched Fern Gully when you were a kid, it's basically that, but they're blue. Yeah, you know, I think that there's something there that Avatar doesn't quite have. What made Avatar such a hit at the time was that gloss of new technology and that gloss of seeing something in a theater or experiencing something in a way that you'd never quite experienced it before. But you can't do that at home. I mean, that's the exact promise of Avatar is I'm going to show you something in the theater that you've never seen before. And that promise that you mentioned that going to the movies to see a James Cameron film is going to be an experience that even though the movie might be your reference disc to watch at home will not be equaled anywhere other than going to see in a theater. It feels like the right movie to come out at this time of the post-COVID recovery for the film industry. We're going to see how Disney can pull this off in a global release that, frankly, Disney hasn't been able to nail over the last two to three years. Disney hasn't been able to deliver the sort of global blockbuster that it used to before the pandemic. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on this company, especially during a transition between two CEOs, during a transition towards putting all of their energy into the streaming platform that's already lost over a billion dollars. It's a really interesting industry conversation to have, dare I say, maybe more interesting than the film itself. Well, and also, you know, it's, you know, Cameron has three more Avatar movies in the pipe. Are they going to do more of these? Again, the reaction of people coming out of Way of Water is like, I didn't think I wanted to see more Avatar movies, and now I cannot wait to see Avatar 3. Well, the question with that is it took 12 years for him to go from Titanic to Avatar. It took 13 to go from Avatar to Avatar 2. I think you said it best a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, Russ. None of us are getting any younger here. That's right. <laughs> I mean, hey, you listen, know, if Avatar 3 is coming out, yeah, the clock's ticking. 
I can, you know, given that it's written and has been written and like some extensive pre-production work has already been done a long time ago for the third Avatar and supposedly the fourth and fifth ones, I can see that if Disney is like, okay, yeah, let's go. I can see delivery of another Avatar two years from now, three years, maybe four. You know, it's not, I don't think it's going to be 10. If they're going to do another one, I don't think it's 10 years. I think it's maybe two, more realistically, three, four at the outside. That's a new office pool here. Bets are open. The last office pool we had is when is this movie ever going to come out? (laughs) The the new one is going to be when are we going to see the third one? But uh, we're looking forward to it, especially if this one is able to connect with audiences, both critically and commercially. Avatar the Way of Water now in theaters from, what is it, 20th Century Studios? I can't, it's Disney. Basically, <laughs> Disney slash Fox, whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about. Russ, thank you so much for joining me in this very long conversation going over the career of James Cameron at the movies. To all our listeners, thank you again for tuning in to the Box Office Podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with Record Edit Podcast. New episodes every Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, like, and share. We'll talk to you again next week.